0: Now, today we're going to start a new message series, a series that we call The War of Myths. It's five narratives in the Gospel of Mark. It's actually going to end up being more narratives than that, sort of a, like a value-added thing, more narratives than just five. By the way, that is not a picture of our new building. I just want you to know that. Not even close. And uh, to be real honest with you, this series is going to be a wee bit offbeat. It's just going to be a little unique and different. Lots of times these uh, series are real clear and mapped out, and I know exactly where God's going to take them and where he wants to go with all of it. But this, the Lord is doing some pretty organic things in my life and in my heart, and so uh, I'm inviting you in to this with me. And uh, last night I said, uh, look, okay, uh, this series is going to be a little bit offbeat. And somebody after the service came up to me and said, oh, Hopkins, when has anything we've ever done been onbeat around here? And uh, a point well taken. I get it. And I want to start this whole thing out by talking to you about the 1984 presidential uh, election right here in the United States. How many of you remember the 84 presidential election? Show of hands. Yeah, I was 10 at the time. Just so you know, that makes some of you feel old and others of you feel young and everywhere in between. If you remember back to 84, I don't remember much. But incumbent Ronald Reagan, he was repeating over and over and over again his certain interpretation of this quite historic moment that America was standing on the edge of. He used these words America is back. Do you remember that? America is back and he was talking about America being back in the sense that there there had been quite an economic crisis in the very early 80s that was beginning to be repealed and rolled back and then he also so America was back and then he tagged onto the end of it this line and walking tall America is back And walking tall and it was his campaign strategy to very simply feed the masses to feed the press a very steady diet of these reassurances about America's divine anointing and world dominance that was what that was all about America is back and walking tall assuming first place on the global stage right it was very very clear that Reagan had identified and had very successfully tapped into the mood of the electorate. That's what made him so able to sort of sweep to the side all political and social evidence to the contrary, that America was back and walking tall. And so Reagan, on one hand, is painting this picture. America is back, and America is walking tall. And at the same time he's painting that picture, there was... Another side to the conversation, though, there were a whole bunch of people in the United States who took great exception to the president's assessment of the nation's standing, walking tall. During the final two weeks of the campaign, all of that superheated, if you will. Some of the opponents gathered every day outside of the White House to register their dissent to the president's view on the country. They, just like President Reagan had, they chose the language of metaphor and symbol. But their metaphor and symbol contrasted quite sharply with the president's. Some of them, for example, erected a tent village across the street from the White House in a place called Lafayette Park. And they dramatized through this tent village the reality of America's burgeoning ranks of homeless and poor and so on. Others very publicly fasted right in front of the White House as a public reminder of the millions around the globe who were starving as the result, or so they claimed, of the administration's bombs over bread policy. Some of you might remember that. And still others actually entered the White House grounds. This was pre-9-11, obviously. They were able to enter, walk right under the White House grounds, and they would actually throw blood onto the portico of the White House, and then they would kneel down and pray as they did that. They would cite the Hebrew scriptures but instead uh, uh, they said that the hand, the blood of the innocent was on Reagan's hands. Victims of his policies from Central America to Southern Africa to South Korea, all around the world, and said that that blood was crying out from those whitewashed pillars. And so there's two quite opposing views on America on the eve of the election, 1984. But the president's ability to hone the image of American pride and American piety prevailed, didn't it? He was handily voted into office for a second term. Protesters, for all of their trouble, they were simply thrown into jail. But the contest of metaphors that raged across the White House grounds on the eve of election day 1984, it really represents the phenomenon that's gonna occupy the central theme of this message series because it really was a war of myths, wasn't it? Each one claiming one thing over the other. And Mark, who is the writer of the gospel in the Bible that bears his same name, he actually went about enlisting the war of myths in his own day when he penned the gospel of Jesus Christ called Mark. He did that by writing his gospel. He did that by retelling the story of Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus Christ's struggle with the powers of Roman Palestine. He engages in that war of myths. And I want you to know, just in case you haven't felt it already, that this is just a wee bit controversial. Because see, there is a whole set of people in Christendom who will argue that Jesus Christ and his gospel and his ministry and his story have absolutely nothing to do with politics. Pope John Paul II claimed as much. Shortly before he died, he said these words, we find re-readings of the gospel that purport to depict Jesus as a political activist, as a fighter against Roman domination and the authorities, and even as someone involved in the class struggle. This conception, the Pope goes on to say, of Christ as a political figure, as a revolutionary, as the subversive from Nazareth, does not tally, the Pope says. And so while there are some who continue to insist that the Jesus story has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with politics, On the other side of the coin, there's been a whole bunch of Christians who have been very busy marshalling the forces, if you will, of the church toward a brand new political activism. It was not all that long ago, just a few decades as a matter of fact, that American fundamentalist Christianity insisted that religion have absolutely nothing to do with politics. However, as you will recall, in recent decades, primarily underneath the banner of Reaganism, The landscape of Christianity and politics has shifted, tectonically shifted, as a matter of fact. Behind such leaders as Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, the church has seen an enormous surge toward political involvement. And whether or not you agree with Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson, it doesn't matter the whole landscape of the conversation around religion and politics has greatly shifted. It's not an issue any longer about whether or not the Bible calls us to merge our faith with our politics. It's more a matter these days of which kind of politics our faith should be merged up with, is it not? And honestly, as I stand here and say these things, this is incredibly dangerous territory for churches to talk about for pastors to stand on stages and unpack, frankly. Why? Here's why. Because as I stand here right now, I know that this congregation is split roughly 50-50, Democrats, Republicans. That means on any given, some of you are like, oh gosh, could I be sitting next to someone who votes differently than I do? Mm. Makes me a little uneasy, actually. That means there are issues on which our congregation would be divided right down the middle, is there not? I know of a church, as a matter of fact, that this has actually happened not all that long ago. Uh, The spouse of a senior leader in this church appeared on the front page of the local newspaper just a couple of days before this past presidential election, and the spouse of the senior leader at this certain church was photographed making calls for one of the two presidential candidates in an effort to... Get out the vote. The caption underneath the photograph told squarely which candidate this person, the spouse of the significant senior leader at this certain church, was making calls for. Now, how do you suppose in that church that went over? Mm. Ever seen a screen door on a submarine? That's profound, by the way. Screen door on a submarine, you're analyzing. Oh, yeah, it leaks. Mm -hmm. You are brilliant, by the way. Not very well. It went over uh, abysmally, as a matter of fact. The wake of that simple photograph of the spouse of a senior staff person is still being felt across that congregation. But what I want you to hear is that following Jesus Christ transcends political parties and transcends all political structures. It just does. It's my view that neither one of the two major political parties in this country, or any other party for that matter, can effectively lay claim to us, lay claim to the Christian vote, though they all try very hard, don't they? Because you see, the commitments that our faith in Jesus Christ elicit from us are far bigger, far grander than just political in nature. How'd that happen? Well, you see, when you started to follow Jesus, those of you who do, for however long you've been following Jesus, when you started following Jesus, it meant that God had actually begun a process in your heart of gripping your heart and eliciting commitments from you toward the very things that God's heart is inclined toward. He wasn't inclining your heart toward political issues. He was inclining your heart toward the stuff that matters most to him, the stuff that is important to God. Really, it all boils down to Jesus' call to all of us to radical discipleship to radical discipleship. Now in the church, we love the word discipleship, right? Everyone wants to know, what are you doing to make disciples? What are you you doing, right? And so we're all comfortable with the word discipleship, but you throw the word radical in front of it and we're like, whoa, that might go someplace kind of scary, might it not? A place that we're not entirely comfortable with. And I want you to know that the gospel of Mark, where we're gonna be spending the next several weeks together, It's a manifesto of sorts of that same radical discipleship to which Jesus has called and invited us. At the end of the day, the gospel of Mark is a story about and for those who tire of the political gamesmanship and wish to more actively move towards God's work of justice and compassion and liberation around the world and around the corner. Mark's is the way of radical discipleship. The same radical discipleship that Jesus himself calls us to, especially in Mark eight thirty four? Check this out. Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he, that's Jesus, said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. And we all say, "Like, well, we follow Jesus. We've done that, right? But when Jesus talks about turning from your selfish ways... He's talking about the fact that the kingdom that he is bringing, the kingdom that he is inaugurating, is not in any way a political kingdom in which people selfishly chew and claw for power and prestige and standing inside of some political structure, even Christians inside of that political structure. Instead, his kingdom is a kingdom in which politics and political structure are superseded and transcended by his followers, that's us, desire to please God above all else, because that's what matters at the end of the day. Justice and compassion and liberation around the world and around the corner, they are not political issues to be bandied about by political parties in an attempt to stake an ownership claim in them. And here's what happens is one party grabs an issue that is close to the heart of Christians, right? And then the other party says, no, no, that's our issue. And so then the other party that missed the issue gets to uh, about triangulating the issue and bringing it back to them so that we come and our votes come and they win elections. That is not what this is about, see? These are not political issues to be bartered and traded. These are the concerns, the very concerns of God himself Concerns to which he has invited and called us to be about setting them right. Setting them square. And I don't mean politically right. But rather right in the economy of God himself. Because this is his stuff. These are his issues. This is his heart. And this gospel of Mark that we're embarking on the study of today, a few narratives anyway, It's been the catalyst, frankly, for a dramatic and fresh and cool movement toward what it means to radically follow Jesus Christ. There's a lot of contemporaries, people my age, who have spent their whole lives growing up in the church, and they're just now starting to look in on the church, and I don't mean a church in particular, I'm talking about the capital C Worldwide Church of Jesus Christ. And they're looking in on this movement called the Church of Jesus Christ. And they feel like they're, they've are they been left wanting. They feel empty. Because in all their days growing up in the church, they thought they had been a part of a movement that promised them personal engagement and some commitment to making some kind of difference in and for the kingdom of God, but they feel like they've been delivered social and kingdom irrelevance by their church community. They feel like they've heard an awful lot of sermons talking about stuff, but nothing that's actually delivered any change, any action, any movement, anything other than just a bunch of talk and conversation. And so there's a whole bunch of people who are my contemporaries who have found this thirst a thirst for the whole gospel, for the whole person, for the whole world that has driven them to the Bible, not anywhere but the Bible, specifically driven them to the gospel of Mark and Mark's call to us for a commitment to what it means to radically and entirely follow Jesus Christ. There's an awful lot of Christianity in the United States that is merely acculturated, is it not? How many people think that they're Christians just because they've grown up in the United States. I'm an American, therefore I am a Christian. That is no more the case than being born in a garage would make you a car or being born at McDonald's would make you a Big Mac or a chicken nugget. Right? That's profound. And here's where the book of Mark, I'm gonna give you the end right now. This is where it all lands, frankly. At the end of the series, you'd come out with this. The thesis of the gospel of Mark is that radical discipleship is the only form in which faith in Jesus Christ can exist. Radical discipleship is the only form in which faith in Jesus Christ can exist. As Mark pens his gospel, he cannot imagine a time when lukewarm Christianity is the norm. When people who call themselves Christians are holding on to areas of their life, and they, sure, they let Jesus into the easy stuff, but the hard stuff they keep for themselves and don't let Jesus Christ have any say, any reign, any lordship, any words as boss over those areas. Mark can hardly imagine that. Discipleship, radical discipleship, is the only form in which faith in Jesus Christ can possibly exist. No milk toast, weasel puke It's radical discipleship sold out or it's nothing, see? I want to show you in the first couple of chapters of Mark just some of what Jesus is up to as he literally takes on the whole of the symbolic order of Jewish Palestine and those who were very careful stewards of that culture. Look at Mark 1, 40 to 45. If you've got a text, you can turn there. If not, you can follow along. Jesus is about to heal a leper here. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required of the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But the man disobeyed Jesus. He went and he spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. In this text, we see Jesus attack head-on the purity code of Jewish religious structure. He steers right into it. He attacks, he takes on the Jewish purity code. Now, at very first glance here, it might look like what Jesus is doing is to respect and uphold the purity code, but he's actually attempting to use it to point out the error of this purity code. You see, the essence of these extensive regulations concerning leprosy was that this disease was highly communicable, right? Like And it's a a bad disease. Leprosy was everywhere, and it was awful. It infected your skin. Layers of skin would begin to literally rot away, causing uh, digits to just fall off, limbs to just fall off, basically. And so they want to keep everybody with leprosy as far away from them as they possibly can. And then they said, all right, if anybody happens to get healed, which hardly ever happened of leprosy... A priest must preside over this ritual cleansing ceremony of those who had been infected and had managed to recover. And Jesus goes, it ought not be that way in my kingdom. It ought not work that way. The sick and the broken are left out on the fringes of society. And then if they do manage to get well, you actually charge them money. You make them pay so that they can be rendered by the priest ritually clean. Jesus says, no way, not in my economy. And so when this leper approaches Jesus Christ, It is highly unusual that he even went up to him. It was a violation of the symbolic system that was established by the priest for how things like ritual cleansing were supposed to take place. The leper knows this. He gives Jesus an out from helping him. When the leper says, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, what he's really saying to Jesus when you look at the original language, you could declare me clean if only you would dare to. You could declare me clean, I dare you to do it. And Jesus takes the dare, doesn't he? He's in, he's on, and he happens to be quite angry. And you're going, how do you know that? Now your Bible probably reads like mine does. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. But I want you to know that a very good number of manuscripts from which the book of Mark was translated from the original language into our language, instead of compassion, moved with compassion, actually read moved with anger. Jesus is furious at a religious system, a system that supposedly represents God himself, is actually choosing to oppress and oppress and doubly oppress the sick and the dying making them pay for purity to be pronounced over them. He's furious. He cannot believe that his father's good name is being used in such a pathetic way. Show of hands, if you will, for a moment. How many of you at some point in your life have ever been so angry by some act of injustice that it compelled you more than ever toward a compassionate act? Anyone? Show of hands. You've been so angry that it compelled you. Yeah, lots of you. Absolutely. That just happens to us, doesn't it? All of us have had numerous times in our lives when our anger at something unjust compels us toward more compassion than we could have possibly mustered on our own. That is righteous indignation is what that is. It's anger at the things that make God angry and that's exactly what happens to Jesus here when he sets his eyes on this leper and he says, this is ridiculous. How can this be in the name of my father? And so Jesus, he wades right in to the thick of the controversy. Not only to touch a leopard was to incur physical danger, but to defile oneself in the eyes of those who kept the ancient purity code was not a good deal. But in the face of an incredibly deep human need like he encountered in this leper, Compassion was far more important than disease or some ritual defilement. And so Jesus, the text says, reached out and touched him. People matter more than regulations. People matter more than rules. The mending of broken bodies was by far more important than adhering to some law. And we miss, we'll blow right by the critical importance that Jesus is envisioning for us here unless we fully grasp what one man said when he said this, the highest love, see, cannot be spoken. It can only be acted. The highest love cannot be spoken. It can only be acted. Jesus touched the leper. You don't touch lepers Because see, there are things that the lips can't say, but hands can and hands do. And Jesus, in the incarnation, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, it was the act of God's love, God's grace, right here, right now, on the scene of human history. And when Jesus touches the leper, when Jesus heals the leper, he is inaugurating a whole new day in Palestine. He's saying, look, the religious institutions are doubly oppressing the sick. First of all, you treat them like second-class citizens. You'll see how in just a moment, you'll see what they call other people. You treat them like second-class citizens just because they're sick, and then you charge them. You make them pay you a special payment for the privilege of that purity being restored. It's not even close Jesus says, to the way that it is supposed to be in my father's kingdom, in the kingdom that I am here to bring about and inaugurate. And in this healing instance with this leper, Jesus brings about cleansing and judgment just right there. He cleanses and heals the guy, and he pronounces incredible judgment upon the whole religious system of the day. Now, Jesus, he had an end in mind, He was hoping that he could use this healing to actually confront the religious leaders. He was going to do it in a strange way through a third party, the keepers of this incredibly unjust system, but it didn't work the way Jesus hoped it did. This guy, instead of going to the priest like Jesus sternly told him to, he decides instead to go blab to everyone about what happened and who did it to him. That then forces Jesus to go underground. He has to go into hiding, see. And the way the text reads... You'd think that the large crowds that are keeping, you'd think that the large crowds are keeping Jesus from entering the towns, right? That this practice of staying outside the city is some method of containing his popularity, managing his popularity, but that's not exactly the case. Jesus, now, because he's touched a leper, he is a marked man, if you will. Jesus isn't welcome any longer in the cities because he has ritually defiled himself according to the Jewish religious political structure of the day. He is unclean because he touched this man. He's set himself quite at odds with the whole religious political structure and he's hanging out outside the cities, but the crowds, they're coming out to see him. And look at Mark 2, 16 through 28. This is quite a bite, but we'll read it together and unpack one little piece of it. It's sort of three scenes in one narrative here. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, that's an important word, saw him, that's Jesus, eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Can you imagine? That's the religious system of the day the leaders of the religious system of the day, the leaders of the organization that claims God, calling children of God scum. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been quite Pharisee-like? Have you ever referred to someone who's different from you or looks different than you or is on the outside of the church or outside of your social strata? As scum. Maybe you didn't use that word in particular. We call them those people sometimes. Jesus says, guys, this is unimaginable. You who claim to represent my father, calling people, my people, my children, scum. Those people. Casting them out. Setting yourselves up as better than anyone else. It is unimaginable and ought not be in my kingdom. And Jesus hears what the Pharisees say. And so he speaks to them. Look, guys, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. He's sort of sticking it in their eye, even with that line. Here's another scene. Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. And then a third scenario. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Imagine, you're walking through a field and you pluck off a little head of weed and you eat a few kernels and the Pharisees, well, they call it harvesting. Seems like a slight, mild overstatement, does it not? Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did? That's sticking it to their eye, by the way. He's just poking his finger right in their eye. Come on, guys. You claim to know the scriptures. You claim to know the text. Haven't you ever read, he says. He's mocking them, taunting them, in a sense. What David did when he and his companions were hungry. He went into the house of God during the days when Abathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus attacks here in this narrative the rules of table fellowship first, The rules of public piety, next. The rules of the maintenance of the Sabbath, last. We don't have time to talk about all three of them, but we'll talk about one, the first one. Jesus takes square on the rules of table fellowship. Now the word Pharisee, it really means separatist. And that's what the Pharisees were. They were separatists. The Sadducees, they went along with the culture, kind of a win in Rome, do like the Romans kind of philosophy. The Pharisees, they separated themselves. They stood off from afar sort of with their arms crossed, commentating on how bad the culture and everything in the culture was. And they did that because they were hoping to maintain this ritual purity. They were hoping to be righteous. They were hoping to be holy, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It was the way they went about it, though. They insulated themselves from the culture, see. It's good that they wanted to be righteous. It's good that they wanted to be holy. We should all strive for that very thing. They wanted to please God, just like we want to please God. Their mistake was that they interpreted this attempt at holiness as insulation. They thought the best way to stay righteous and clean was to avoid contact with the unrighteous, with the scum, with those people. And so here's Jesus Christ. He claims to be the son of God and he's hanging out with the scum, those people, the unrighteous. He even went so far as to go into the home of a tax collector, a sinner above all sinners and eat dinner with them. He made friends with the scum. Jesus then in their eyes for the second time we've looked at today has once again contaminated himself. See, just by virtue of his Interaction with people. Contaminated. That's how they looked on it. But the Pharisees, they had a a very incorrect view of holiness. Holiness is not about insulation and standoffishness and arms crossed and offering commentary on everything wrong with the culture. That is not it. We see Jesus in these narratives, see, reaching out to those in need. In dire need. Why? Because that's the nature of God. That's who God is at his core. And what we're going to look at through the book of Mark, these several narratives over the next several weeks, is going to tell us everything that we need to know about who God is. The God we serve. The God we follow. The God who we are attempting to order our lives around. And for those of us who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ the kind of God who has literally been in pursuit of you since before the beginning of time, hungering, longing after a relationship with you, the hound of heaven in pursuit of your soul because to God nothing matters more than you and your soul see. And Jesus reaches out in this case and he heals the leper. He touches the leper And it was an expression of his deep compassion. It's an expression of his compassion, yes. It's also confronting a political religious system that oppressed those people. He's calling them out. And he said, "Uh uh-uh. It isn't going to work like this in my kingdom. It is also an expression of what we're going to meet again and again and again in the gospel narratives. That Jesus longs for a personal touch, a personal encounter with people in need. And that's us. We have great need, don't we? Most of all, we need to be healed and cleansed and saved and redeemed from our sin. All of us do. Me included. You included. Every person on planet Earth. That's why Christ came to Earth. To save sinners. And he came and he put skin on. It wasn't just like he briefly touched down and took off. Uh-uh. He dwelt among us. He felt what we feel. He endured what we endure. He suffered. He suffered so that we wouldn't have to suffer. While the Pharisees, the religious people of the day, they were busy withdrawing and separating, not Jesus Christ. He was drawing closer, involving himself with his beloved children, involving himself so that he could extend his touch, so that he could extend his love to every one of us, every last one of us. Why don't you take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to go to prayer. Just bow your heads and close your eyes and get alone with the Lord and talk to him about what's on your heart. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christ follower and as you think on all this stuff, you realize that you've actually been quite Pharisee-like. You've been thinking of your personal holiness in terms of insulation and removal from those people, that scum. Maybe you've been a person who thought who's thought that the best way to be righteous is to entirely avoid contact with the, quote, Unrighteous. If that's you, hear the Lord calling you out today. Hear the Lord inviting you to let Him dig that out of your heart, every last bit of it. If you see even a taste of that in yourself, even a glimpse, Would you invite the Lord to tear those barriers and tear those stigmas, tear that vocabulary, tear those divisions down? Because that is not of Him. Invite Him to infuse into your heart the names of people who you've been avoiding because you've seen them as scum. You've seen them as unrighteous. You've seen them as those people. Who is Jesus Christ calling you more toward today? Would you ask the Lord, invite him to compel your heart to connect with those people, to connect with that person all toward a redemptive end so that you can reveal the love of God to them. And maybe there's those of you sitting in this room right here, right now, and you have yet to step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ as your savior, may I ask, please, respectfully, what's keeping you from making that decision today? What's holding you back today? What's holding you back from experiencing God's love, God's touch, God's healing, God's renewal today? God's gift of a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, it all starts with you crossing the line of faith. It all starts with you inviting Him into your heart and life. You can do that right here, right now. You can do it by praying along with me right where you're sitting. A prayer that goes something like this, God, I know that you love me and I am so grateful for your love. I'm also so incredibly grateful that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. And today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that it's my stuff that separated me from you. It wasn't anything you did, God. It was me. I moved out on you. And God, I believe with everything in me that because of your love, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I ask you to, by the death of Jesus Christ, forgive me for my sin, please. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. I want you to change me. I need you to reorder my life starting today, Father. And if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, nothing matters more. There's not a bigger deal effort and it's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they make that decision nobody's going to embarrass you nobody's looking around this room except me if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ to experience his love his touch his healing would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and just make eye contact with me and just say yes I did right there now God is making you new and you back there. Life is never the same. You will not ever be the same. God's changing you right now. And right there. God's changing you and he's healing you and he's making you all new. You're his starting right now. If there be any others. I don't want to miss anybody. It's way too big a deal. God, we are so compelled by your love. And may your love, God, for your children, for your people, compel us to never take on the traits that the Pharisees took on, to never set ourselves up as superior or better or more well-off. Your chosen God, may we never be like the Pharisees, please. Guard our hearts. And any time we even Get close to that line. Would you pull us back, God? Remind us of your love for us when we were not worthy of your love for us. And challenge our hearts, God, to be the one who extends your love, your touch, your healing, your redemption into the lives of people who today are far from you. Bring names to mind. Bring people to mind who we've written off as those people, as those unrighteous, as that scum, God. Put them square in our path, even today, God. Put them square in our path, please. We want to be used by you. Not just to have a nice Christian club, but we want to be used by you to radically change the face of the world not in our own accord, not in our own strength, but by yours, God. Use us to that end, please. We're all in, and we love you with everything in us, God. We pray this in Jesus' holy, precious, sacrificial and worthy name. And the church said,